Section 13 of An Itinerant House and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Scano. An Itinerant House and Other Stories by Emma Frances Dawson. The Second Card Wins. Part 1. A house with two doors is difficult to guard. Spanish proverb. First part. The lovely Mrs. Clare speaks. I read people at a glance. Always could. It was born in me, as it seems to have been born in my husband to dispute it. And I don't care what he says. I shall still think there was some strange secret between Mark Dillon and that woman, there was always something queer about him. I saw it at first when Sam brought him to our rooms in the hotel and presented him to me as his old friend from India who joins us for the opera. I thought it was shyness that kept him dumb, for he only bowed and stared. Oh, from India, I cried, warmly shaking hands. The one I am to thank for the rare fans sent to Sam's wife. I am so glad to meet you. You have it, then, he said, looking closely at me. He was plainly struck with Sam's taste in the choice of a wife. He never got over his surprise, but always watched me with a puzzled air, as he might look at a strange bird or flower, even turning to gaze after me. Yes, indeed, among my treasures, I said. I was waiting for Sam to take me to the opera tonight. Here it lies with my India shawl. I took it up, a gay bunch of bright feathers, and a pitcher on one side, mounted on sandalwood and silver, beaten by the patient toil of India into frost-like flowers and leaves. One spray even twisted round the red tassel. Now, do tell me the story, I begged. You wrote in the note to Sam which came with it that it was enchanted. What did you mean? He looked startled. I had nearly forgotten that, he said. It was a spell cast by an old Hindu whom I vexed by smiling at his tricks of magic. Has it worked? I asked lightly, as I drew on my long gloves while we waited for Sam, whose man is so slow in the last touches of his toilet. Mr. Dillon looked uneasy. In spite of my common sense, he said, though I thought I was above such delusions, I must confess that the spell is working. Where will it end? He asked himself. <laughs> How awful! What is it? I asked, adding with a laugh. I shall look at my lovely fan with a half fear of it. Well, he said, after a moment's thought, I will tell you, for it is not you who are to suffer. But first, please, tell me the date of your marriage. Why, the fan was among my bridal gifts. Have you forgotten when you sent it? Oh, yes, he replied, with what seemed a painful effort of memory. Well, this is its story. While I was at the Rajat of Putiala, a rich and powerful babu, Lal Chunda, asked his friends to come and see a great juggler, 
show his tricks foreigners and natives all went on elephants camels and horses the baboo's divan was in the centre of his courtyard we sat round him the natives smoking hookahs there was a din of tum-tum wallahs and a troop of notched dancers then to the sound of gongs and trumpets came the sorcerer on a gaily decked elephant he made gracious salaams to us and after sending paper birds and butterflies in long flights chosen by us calling up from a far-off pack any card we named and other slight tricks often shown he had the fire made into which he cast fragrant spices and while they burned he put on a robe covered with strange signs from a pocket in this he took a wooden ball full of holes where long thongs hung out grasping one of these he flung the ball into the air with such force that it passed unreeling as it went at once out of our sight and stayed in the clouds then he made climb the thong a camel which quickly vanished in the sky a boy was sent after making many trips and bringing at each descent something for the baboo's guest these gifts were left in a pile while the boy was told to bring the rest on the camel he went up but the animal now loaded came down alone the conjurer called three times then in a rage snatched a knife and himself rang up the thong we could see nothing but heard his fierce threats and the boy's wild cries he soon threw down one of the boy's hands then a foot then the other hand the other foot the trunk and then the head he ran down panting and with blood on his robe laid the parts of the boy's body all in the place still raging at him and gave them a kick when the boy rose and bowed to us and divided the gifts among us who were in each case chosen by the magician after making us pass singly behind the vapors of his mystic fire with each thing he gave some warning the natives much excited colon brahma vishnu kali and all the calendar of indian gods but the foreigner smiled at the fine jugglery and i laughed out the sorcerer looked at me long and gravely and cast that fan to my lot he came to me spread it and showing me the picture on it said i have put you there that figure will go away when you leave the world though you send this fan straight as an arrow it shall yet swerve from its course when her hand holds it will be when your sun sinks behind the golden mist but i don't understand said i about the working of the spell come come said sam bustling in what are you talking about mark you look too grave for opera booth and hurried us off during the evening i overheard mr dillon ask sam why did you never write how matters stood sam took his opera glass and looked over the house and searched all his pockets for cardamoms before he answered why should i i knew at once what they must mean of course sam would prefer to have his wife seen to be boasting of her beauty after we came home sam asked how i liked his friend 
What makes him so queer? I said. How? demanded Sam, bristling, as usual, for fear someone may have slighted me. What did he say? he asked anxiously. What was he telling you here? I told him, adding, he seemed so absorbed and odd. But Sam, who, while I was telling him the story, was crazy enough to knock over my best cloisonne bowl and break a Dresden vase, only said, asked when we were married, did he? The infernal climate of India must have affected his brain. So I ceased to wonder at Mark Dillon's odd ways, even at his looking troubled at seeing me carrying that fan, and really trying to have me change it for a carved cherry stone bracelet he brought from China. I did not mind his losing himself in thought when near us, or watching me, as if I puzzled him. Sam had explained it all, but he could never set my mind at ease about that woman. I pride myself on my power to study character and motives. It is simply impossible to hoodwink me. The moment I first set eyes on her on the overland train, I thought, there is a woman with a story, and to think that even now, I do not know what the story was, is enough to make me let down my back hair and scream, as I did at Aunt Anne's yesterday when the oysters were not cooked to suit me. She looked able to travel anywhere alone, as she was then. I had my maid and manservant, of course, what with my lovely sky and huidas, latest, my shawls, lunch basket, candy jar, and writing desk, for Sam expects to hear every day. I could not travel without. I don't see how anyone can, though Babette was half sick and wholly cross, and Alphonse smelled of cheap cigars in the smoking car, so that really I did have my troubles. She sat in the next seat, and I could not help showing her some kindness in the way of canned turkey and stuffed olives and sherry, for she seemed strong in neither body nor purse. She had severe nervous headaches, and I loaned her my vinaigrette. As she returned it, just as we were nearing San Francisco, she said, You have been kind to me. I'm very grateful. May I ask the meaning of that monogram? pointing to the initial set in brilliance in the side of the little golden flask. My name is Claire, I said. Those letters stand for my husband's name. Oh, she said. I am also Mrs. S.C. My name is Capel. Indeed, said I. That is the name in my husband's family. It is his middle name. How strange. But my husband has no relatives living, said she. I wanted to ask about her husband, but feared she was a widow. She seemed to read my thoughts. My husband is in California somewhere, she went on. I'm going to try and find him. Then you have not lately heard from him? I asked. Not for ten years, was her startling reply. What would Sam say, I thought, to such conduct in a husband? How surprised he will be, I said. Yes said she. I did not know where to write. I wanted to ask if she thought he was worthy of such search, but I saw she was poor. Perhaps she hoped he had money. Possibly she was still fond of him, but I thought he had most likely forgotten her, for, though plainly a bright woman, she had none of the dainty curves and fair rose tints that do a man's eyes good, such as I know please Sam and me. 
I urged her to come to my hotel. I had reached home Thursday night, a week before my husband expected me. I planned to surprise him, but found he had gone on a hunting and fishing trip to San Gregorio. When he came back, I meant to make him help my new acquaintance. I took her under my wing, chose her room, made Babette dress her hair, and we went down to breakfast together Friday morning, when who should sit in front of us but Mark Dillon? He was so amazed to find I had come that he seemed really nervous. Bless my soul, Mrs. Clare, said he, looking as much at her as at me, and then got very red and confused. I never quite knew before how much he admired me. I felt so glad to be at home again. I urged him to come to my rooms after breakfast and practice duets. When he came, Mrs. Capel was with me, and I presented him to her. I saw then he did not seem at ease. This is a new friend of mine, I told him. Her husband is somewhere in California, and I'm going to help her find him. Y you Help her? Good gracious! No! Yes! Certainly! Oh, of course! By all means! Was his strange reply. He seemed more absent-minded than ever, as if trying to see his way clear for something. At last, he said, Mrs. Clare, I've got a letter last night from Sam. Want to hear it? No, said I. I found one waiting for me, in case I got here while he was gone. Ah, with a sonnet to your eyebrow? He asked. No, Sam never writes first to me nowadays, I said. He does to me, said he and I want you ladies to hear it, with stress on the word ladies, as he saw Mrs. Capel about to leave the room. She waited, he went on. Sam has sent up a rare shot of his, a loon, to be stuffed for our club rooms. Says he has not had very good luck this season, and it seems to have made him downhearted, to judge from his rhymes. Title, Portent No looker-on, but wild growth, like the fern, I feel the hidden current's forceful sway. I must attend to weird cries of the hern, must round the marsh with phantom vapor stray, and pause, breast high, where reeds and rushes rear their flaunting craze to watch the white gull's flight, as high athwart wide roving clouds they veer through darkening air like waning flecks of light the sluggish water dreads the storm's first dip turns rolling eyes of light towards sullen sky the winds as in the cordage of a ship through tangled forest wander piping by they mock the cries of shipwrecked sailors shout and wail and laugh till i Excited, scream, dead silence follows, for the goblin rout, then no man's presence in their sylvan dream. I turn where cypress branches interlace, to arch against the sun's red wane, outlining vast cathedrals, gloomy space, half lit by gothic windows' scarlet stain. Within this holy hush and solitude, Entranced I linger and forget, forget, 
no past above me here can darkly brood no future watch upon my footsteps set what voice of hidden mephistopheles with scornful echo startles the lagoon i feel the current of my lifeblood freeze a dread derisive laughter of a loon alas although i shot him in my dreams i hear his warning cry and watch the storm till where the lightning through the shadow gleams upon the marsh i see my lifeless form what nonsense i began when the look on his face and hers stopped me he had handed her the verses to look at but with only a glance at them she was looking at him with a painfully earnest question in her gaze while his face was that of a culprit who is caught for the moment i could have sworn they were not strangers i had thought them then she rose tried to excuse herself and started to go to her room but was so faint i with babette had to help her reach it worn out from her journey i explained to mr dillon no excuse needed mrs clare i saw for myself then he made a series of failures with our duets for flute and piano which were wont to make us sure of being asked to musical parties in the middle of duets semiramidae he broke down and turned it off by asking where did you make her acquaintance on the overland train ah you're smitten as i was i said are you pleased with her he asked sworn lasting friendship and vowed to help her find her own true love said i to hide his next mistake he said how do you know he is her own true love oh i know he must be i replied the word fickle is unknown to you he asked yes isn't sam my model he failed again and begged to be excused from further practice mrs capel kept her room with a nervous headache all saturday but on sunday i made her drive with mr dillon and me to the cliff house i wisely planned it so neither knew the other was going until too late to pause starting with her and taking him up on the way there was a warning of coming storm in the black haze that as mr dillon said made the air a magic crystal showing far off places as if near and by the time we had finished luncheon and gone out on the balcony a wall of fog hid the sea but for what seemed a short space for us someone in the parlor played a snatch of wagner's spinning song too monotonous i said the droning wheel said dylan but you can hear the footfall of fate see the red sails and black masts of the doomed ship and in liszt's version hear the wind whistle in the rigging he turned to her as if she had asked a question but when the captain finds center at her wheel she is bound to another what can be done then i asked truly said he still looking at her what can be done she thought a moment before replying there is a decision of heinz lover as fickle as the wind thy heart that flutters to and fro with black sails sails my ship across the seas to go he sprang up and began pacing up and down when suddenly a full-rigged vessel looming through the mist passed within hail 
more phantom-like than real. Like a dream, she said. And to them, said he, the shore looks like dreamland. Noiseless, ghostly, and swift as the flying Dutchman, she said. How absurd for people to rave over that opera, said I, that old fogey striding along the beach, so many paces to certain orchestral chords, and so on. Nothing to get so excited over, as folks like you all do. It is because he is fated, like the figure on the fan, he said with a sigh, and asked us to excuse him for a while. I was glad to have him go, for she had caught his trick of watching me, and I was impatient under the musing gaze of two. When he had gone, she asked, Suppose it to be Santa, who finds the captain faithless. What ought she to do? You could ask no better person, I said. How do you mean? She asked, looking at me with wonder. I felt proud of being appealed to. I knew what should be done, and I told her at once. Make him pay for the ship she set sails in. Money, she said bitterly. Yes, said I. A man should pay for forgetting me. But such a thing is not possible to Sam. One would think you, who have all the money you want, would not value it. She said, Not quite all I want. Sam has promised me a hundred thousand dollars for my birthday next week, and I am glad to get it. A hundred thousand dollars, she said, as if deep in thought, and after a pause, went on. Suppose a woman to have had two lovers, and to have chosen the one who proves least faithful. Don't fancy such things, I cried. Wait till he's found. Oh, why don't you advertise for your husband? Lost, strayed, or stolen, drawled Mr. Dillon, who had lounged back unseen, and startled us by speaking. How shall I make amends? he asked by writing some verses about that mirage, like vision of a sail, said Mrs. Capel. While he wrote, with notebook on knee, the fog cleared, and there was a strange sunset which charmed them, but I was too vexed over the damp the fog left on my crimps to care, he said. A poem in colors, she quoted, the setting of a great hope is like the setting of the sun, why was not that said in verse instead of prose, said he. Use it, she hinted. It would be no worse theft, he answered, than sweet by and by, which is but a poor version of the old Irish air. Has sorrow thy young days shaded? Soon after, he read to us, title, haphazard. In the balcony jutting above the wild ocean, like seen an Arabian night reveals, where oft we linger with gay emotion to look at the rocks and the sunning seals, to number the clouds and the gulls wind-shaken, and name the crowding white horses whose manes float and flutter to spray as they sink overtaken, the sea reclaims. Twas here we stood, when a mist unbroken made the world seem sketched on a vapored pane. Gray walls surrounded, 
and blurred all token, whether sun or moon might arise or wane. Twas like a dawning or dreamy gloaming, and a potent spell upon you and me, for as we paused there, our thoughts were roaming, ships at sea, as if in conjurer's crystal looming, through murky depths sailed a ship afar, like thistled down in its phantom blooming, or a floating film a breath might mar, as if carved off the moonstone's cloudy sheen, through the mist it glimmered with softened glow, and its sails afret with the wind were seen, intaglio, and you murmured, perhaps in that vessel one passes, whom we might have adored had we known, and it may be their view our own so surpasses, their fantasies shoreward are blown. Alas, I answered, we have no warning, when the things that almost occur are near, or, like our dreams between dusk and dawning, disappear. Then they fell to talking of omens, second sight, the sway of one mind over another, and such ghostly stuff, to my high glee and scorn. People who can believe in such things, I said, are easily duped. Mrs. Clare, he said, as I have often told you, you must some time be most completely fooled. It is sure to be. I had not time to tell him what a vain boast this was, when Sam, who had reached town, learned where we had gone, and followed, came out among us. As nodding to Mr. Dillon, he rushed toward me. He noticed Mrs. Capel, but he was quite overcome at the sight of me. He turned pale. His eyes flashed. He could scarcely speak. What is it? I cried. Are you ill? He tried to turn it off with some pretense of a passing faintness, but he seemed stunned. Of course, I understood. He was vexed not to have been here when I returned. Why didn't I hear from you? He asked Mr. Dillon angrily. I sent a dispatch in reply to your letter, said his friend. I never got it, said Sam crossly. I think Mrs. Capel must have one of the sensitive electroplate minds Mr. Dillon talks of, for she said nothing, only, turning red and pale by turns, watched Sam with searching gaze, as was natural when I had promised her his help. I hastened to make them acquaintance, to tell him about her, and beg him to aid her to find her husband, but she put up one hand as if to stop me, vainly tried to speak, and looking an appeal to Mark Dillon. I shall always think his queer aspect then was conscious guilt, slid out of her chair in a deep swoon, from which Mr. Dillon and I had hard work to revive her, while Sam looked on, frightened and displeased. He was so kind, he would not come to town with us for fear of crowding us in her faint state. But I knew he was angry to have our meeting so broken in upon by a stranger, Indeed, it made him take such a dislike to her that he refused to have anything to say to her. You are prejudiced, I said. Perhaps I am, he replied, coolly and would have nothing to do with her. He seemed all worn out by his trip to San Gregorio, and in the evening 
had a severe fit of cramp in his right arm and shoulder. My head was so full of Mrs. Capel that I had just burst out about it. I believe I know where to lay my hand on her husband. Sam looked amazed, gave a husky sort of roar, and that very moment was seized with this cramp that kept his man rubbing him for a long time. When Alphonse had been sent out, I went on, though Sam had to look over some business papers and could hardly attend to me. I feel sure that Mr. Dillon knows, I said. Sam looked up as if annoyed. He cannot bear anything roundabout, while I like mysteries, perhaps because I can solve them. Yes, said I, at the risk of vexing him about his friend. I believe he is her husband. Sam gave a sigh of relief. The cramp had been so bad. With an admiring glance, he cried, By Jove! I never thought of that. This woman's keen wit. But then I always knew I was more shrewd than the others. As a reward of merit, he brought me some fine candy, saying, A Market Street confectioner advertises these as high-toned. Does he mean their rank flavor? Perhaps they made me dream. As the lady in the next room says, it is the sugar in the whiskey punch which flies to one's head. Anyway, I dreamed strangely that night. I seemed to stand at the elbow of some man whose face I could not see as he bent over a letter he was writing. A queer letter. And the dream was so plain that I saw him trace each word and, leaning over him, read as he wrote, as disembodied spirits we might agree, but as life is, as it is, so dependent on our mortal frames and temperaments, I have made my choice. I roused from sleep to find myself in bed alone. Babette had left the night lamp burning as usual. I knew Sam was in the next room casting up accounts, as he often sat up to do. Then, puzzling over Mark Dillon and that woman, I dropped off again, to the same dream, the figure writing with face bent toward the right, and myself standing at his left shoulder. He had written on, and while I watched, his hand formed these words. Silence, with instant departure for Europe, with a solemn promise never to return or send a message to me by word or letter. These are my sole terms even if I must pay at the rate of a thousand dollars for each letter in the words. Again I struggled to my senses. I sat up in bed to be sure I was now awake. Sam came in and was alarmed, thinking I was ill. I wish, said I, I could give Mr. Dillon a piece of my mind. Better not meddle in what does not concern you, said Sam, quite gruffly for him. An hour or two later, I was roused by Sam's talking in his sleep. Is she not worth a hundred thousand dollars? he muttered. He was dreaming of the sum he had promised me. Then he grew angry. Why won't you go? he cried fiercely. There is the money. Sam, Sam, I called. Who is meddling now with other folks' affairs? You are dreaming. Only half awake, he cried. You shall not part us and grasped me firmly by the arm. What is the matter? I asked, waking him at last. Oh, what was I saying? 
he asked anxiously, and scarcely slept again. So I did not wonder he did not want to go to the theater Monday night, as I had before his return engaged with Mrs. Capel and his friend to do. You must guard yourself tonight, I said to Mr. Dillon, as he went to call for Mrs. Capel. I have lent her the bewitched fan. I did not think of his taking it seriously, but he muttered, Great heavens! Has it reached her at last? What is that? I asked. It seems to me we are all a little crazy about this, stranger. It is all your fault, he answered. You brought her here. Did I? I asked. It was her absent husband. You know very well what brought her. I think you know him, I added this recklessly, but was surprised at the effect. He got so excited. Oh, Mrs. Clare, he cried. Don't ask me anything about it. I know nothing, nothing, nothing. As well as you know yourself, I went on. You are, I faltered. I felt I was verging on rudeness. We had reached her door. I dared not go on, but he understood. I, her husband, it is like telling a man who is bound hand and foot that he is free. I, but his nervous knock brought her at once to her door, and I lost whatever he meant to say. End of section 13 Recording by Mary Scano